my wife and I were reflecting a little bit on this past year, and uh, I don't know if you realize it or not, but uh, it's been a big deal for us this last week. It marked the one-year anniversary since my wife started her uh, her chemotherapy treatments for her uh, breast cancer. And uh, I know many of you have seen her back at church here recently, and it's great to have her here. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a long, hard year for our family in, in many ways. Uh, Kim spent all last summer uh, doing chemotherapy, and then in the fall she had her surgery, and then basically uh, two, three months over this winter was doing her radiation treatments uh, daily. It was just uh, incredibly... Uh, huge trial for us in our lives, and um, we are very thankful to be on this side of the past year rather than where we were this time last year. And uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> so I just, I, I'm sharing this with you because we just want to express our thanks to all of you guys as our church family for your love and your support your graciousness to us this past year. Um, you guys have really sustained us through this, this huge ordeal. And uh, if it wasn't for the, the words of encouragement and the notes and the prayers and the gifts and just the, the, the so many ways all of you guys have just tangibly blessed us and been the hands and feet of Christ to us in our lives, um, I, I just don't know how we would have made it through all of this. And uh, it's just such a privilege to have the body of Christ to be a support for one another. And, uh, and I hope you guys feel that too here at our church, that you feel the love of the body of Christ around you. Because that's, that's really one of the great privileges that we have as Christians is to be that source of encouragement and support for one another. You know, the, the, the walk in the Christian life, the life of faith isn't easy. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we all face all kinds of trials and challenges. And, uh, and a lot of times they kind of just come at us out of nowhere, you know. And um, it's in those times where we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to keep walking by faith, keep trusting God. And, and the reality is, is that's often hard to do when you're in the midst of the storm, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it gets easy to get distracted. And that's why having the church, the body of Christ around you to remind you of those powerful truths and to encourage you to press on and to keep going and not give up it's just so important. And, and, and so again, I thank you guys and I hope you too experience the, the encouragement that comes from being a part of the body of Christ. Um, nothing better than that. I, I share that because it actually is actually a good segue into our message this morning because the whole book of Hebrews that we've been looking at this past year is really one long extended encouragement to these early Hebrew Christians to continue to press on in the faith to not give up, to not lose heart, to not turn back from following Jesus Christ. We've talked about this a few times over the last year, but you know, these early Hebrew Christians, they were under tremendous pressure. They were under tremendous pressure to turn away from their faith, to go back to the religion of Judaism. They were being pressured by their family and by their culture around them. You know, this Jesus guy, you, you made the wrong choice. Come back to the temple, come back to the priest. That's where you're gonna find, you know, forgiveness and, and absolution for your sins. And, and, and there were all these pressures, not only from their family and their culture, but from the Roman Empire. This, this was right during the period where the Roman Empire was beginning to persecute the early Christian church. And, and so a lot of these people are like, is this even worth it? Why are we doing all this? Why are we dealing with all this stress and pressure? If we would just go back to the Jewish system, we'd be in good shape. 
And so the author of Hebrews wrote this book as an encouragement to these early Christian believers to press on, to not give up, to not lose heart. And and, uh, and chapter 12 in particular, where we've been the last three weeks, if you haven't heard Pastor Rick's messages the last three weeks, he's given some great messages from this chapter, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 in particular is, is maybe the pinnacle of the encouragement in the book of Hebrews. The whole chapter is basically using the metaphor of a marathon to describe the Christian life. And, you know, for those of you who have run a marathon, I've never run a marathon, but I've gone and watched my wife run marathons, and I've had many friends here at church who have run marathons. When you're running a marathon, you know, you got to press on, and it's hard, and it's, you know, you hit that that place where you kind of hit the wall and you need that encouragement of the crowd to cheer you on to keep going. And the Christian life is like that. It's like running this marathon. And it's hard and it's trying, but we continue to press on because our eyes are on the goal. Our eyes are on the prize of being united with Jesus Christ. And everything else pales in comparison to that. And so this is really what Hebrews 12 has been all about. It's been this encouragement to press on, to continue to run the race faithfully. And today we're going to come to the conclusion of chapter 12 where the author of Hebrews paints for us a picture, uh, a concluding uh, encouragement for us by painting a picture of two contrasting mountains. He paints a picture for us of two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And as we're going to see, these two mountains really represent two competing visions of our relationship with God. And and what we need to understand this morning before we begin is every single one of us in this room stands before one of these two mountains today. You're either standing at the foot of Zion or you're standing at the foot of Sinai, but all of us in this room fall into one of those two categories. We all stand before one of these two mountains, Sinai or Zion. And, And they represent these two images of our relationship with God. Sinai represents the law and God's holiness and God's judgment of sin, whereas Zion represents God's grace and his love and his forgiveness. And you're either standing at the foot of Zion or you're standing at the foot of Sinai, but the mountain that you stand at makes all the difference in the world. So we're going to talk about this this morning. We're going to talk about how this metaphor plays out in the author of Hebrews' argument here in chapter 12. Let's begin by reading this passage together, uh, verses 18 through 29, the, the last half of chapter 12. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant in the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may re- may remain. 
Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, as I said a minute ago, here in our passage today, the author of Hebrews points us to these two mountains. Two mountains representing two covenants between God and his people. Sinai representing the old covenant and the law given at Mount Sinai to the children of Israel. And then Zion, which represents the new covenant of grace given in Jesus Christ and fully realized at Mount Zion. And these two covenants are really two ways of viewing our relationship with God. Because all of us today, whether you realize it or not, stand at the base of one of these two mountains. You either stand under the judgment of Sinai or you stand under the grace of Zion. Which mountain are you standing before today? That's the question we need to consider. Am I standing before Sinai or Zion? Let's take a look at these two mountains here this morning and see what exactly the author of Hebrews is getting at in these descriptions that we just read. We start out looking at Mount Sinai, the mountain of fear. In verses 18 through 21, we get this description of Mount Sinai as being this place of just a terrifying experience. And what's going on here? Well, the author of Hebrews here is referring back to the exodus when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And this is where God was going to appear to the children of Israel to give to them the law and the sacrificial system that we've been talking about many times in our series so far. And if you read the account in Exodus chapter 19 of God appearing at Sinai, it parallels this description in Hebrews chapter 12. It was a terrifying experience for the children of Israel. God descended upon the mountain in a cloud with fire and smoke. And there was thunder and lightning and the whole mountain shook when God's presence descended upon Sinai. And the Israelites trembled in fear. Even Moses trembled in fear. You know, we, we, we see the imagery of the storm and the lightning and, you know, it, it kind of brings me back to, remember that movie from years ago, The Perfect Storm, right? That true story about that huge hurricane that got whipped up in the Atlantic Ocean and the fishing boats that were lost, right? Friends, this was really, literally the perfect storm. It was the perfect storm of God and his perfect holiness descending upon Mount Sinai. And the Israelites trembled in fear at the presence of God. And it wasn't just the thunder and the lightning and the earthquake that caused the Israelites to tremble in fear, but it was the fact that they were standing in the very presence of God's holiness. And there in the presence of God's holiness with no covering, with no mediator, with no absolution for their sin, they stood there in the midst of God's holiness totally exposed and the filth and disgust of their sin was blatantly obvious. And they couldn't hide it and they could not get away and they begged God to stop speaking because they couldn't bear it because his holiness was so overwhelming in light of their filth and their sin and their guilt. Back in the 1980s, my family went to the Philippines to serve as missionaries, and the mission organization we worked with was called Action International Ministries. One of the ministries that they had was an outreach to a place called Smoky Mountain. 
Smoky Mountain was one of the largest garbage dumps in the world. It's in the capital of Manila in the Philippines. And it's called Smoky Mountain because it's so big and there's so much garbage that it literally perpetually burns with fire from spontaneous combustion of the garbage. There at Smoky Mountain, thousands and thousands of people live in the midst of this garbage dump. They've made it their permanent home. It's the only place they can survive. They scavenge the garbage every day for food and anything that they can use and recycle. This mission organization that we were working with, they had an outreach to the children of Smoky Mountain and the missionaries, they discovered something really peculiar. When they first went into Smoky Mountain to minister to the kids there, the kids of Smoky Mountain were terrified of the missionaries. And the missionaries wanted to invite them out of Smoky Mountain to go to vacation Bible school, to go to camp, to take them out to experience something more, something better. But the children were terrified. They didn't want to go. And the missionaries didn't understand what was going on until they got to know some of the elders of the villages there in Smoky Mountain. And they came to find out that the children were ashamed of their guilt, and not their guilt, of their filth. Of the, of the stains on their clothes, of the dirtiness of their skin. And they were so ashamed they didn't want to be exposed to the world outside because they were so stained with dirt and filth. Friends, just like those children at Smoky Mountain, the Israelites stood in the presence of God's holiness and God's majesty and they realized the extent of their sin. They saw their filth, they saw their guilt. They saw their ugliness in light of God's holiness. And the reality is, is this has been humanity's problem going back all the way to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve committed that very first sin. When Adam and Eve first rebelled against God and they brought sin into the world in what we call the fall, when sin entered God's perfect creation for the very first time. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did? What their very first response was once they fell into sin and rebelled against God? Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 says that when God came to them in the garden, what did Adam and Eve do? They ran away and they hid from God. They hid from God. Why did they hide from God? They hid from God because they were ashamed of their nakedness. And it wasn't just that they were without clothing, but they were ashamed of their nakedness because for the very first time in all of human history, they recognized their moral failure in the eyes of a holy God. They recognized their sin and the ugliness and the weight of their guilt and their shame in the eyes of a holy, perfect God. And so they hid from God. They hid from God. God gave the law at Mount Sinai. He gave the sacrificial system at Sinai to provide a temporary covering for our sins. But as we've already looked at throughout our series, the giving of the law, the giving of the priestly sacrificial system only made the reality of the Israelites' guilt and separation from God all the more obvious. You see, this is our basic fundamental problem as human beings. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is holy and we are not. All of us are stained by sin. All of us are tainted with sin. And God and his holiness, you know, we can never enter into the presence of God and his holiness because of our sin. This is our fundamental problem. It's like oil and water. You know, if you want to do an experiment today, go home and get a big five-gallon bucket, fill it with water, and then pour a quart of motor oil in that bucket. You know, what's going to happen with the oil and water? It's going to always remain separate, isn't it? You can take a spoon and start stirring that up. You can get a mixer in there, 
But at the end of the day, that oil and that water will always stay separate because by their very natures, they're two different distinct things. And this is how it is between us as fallen human beings and God and his holiness. There's nothing that we can do to enter into the presence of God on our own efforts, by our own efforts, because by our very nature, we are fallen sinful beings and God is pure and perfect and holy and to even stand in the presence of God's holiness as a finite human fallen being is to tremble in fear. I read a quote this week from Pastor J.D. Greer. He says, standing in the presence of God with sin would be like tissue paper touching the face of the sun. God's holiness just burns it up. And the Israelites recognized that. Moses recognized that. They trembled with fear. Friends, I think if we had a vision of who God truly is in his holiness, I don't think any of us could even even help but just fall flat on our faces in light of the awesome majesty of God in his holiness. This is our problem as human beings. You know, I find it interesting today how many skeptics, you know, one of the most common things I hear from skeptics is they say, you know, if God really exists, why doesn't he just make himself more obvious? You ever heard somebody say something like that before? You know, if God is real, why doesn't he just show himself? Friends, let me tell you this. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you don't want God showing himself. Trust me. God in his holiness, in his majesty, apart from a mediator, apart from a covering for our sin, is the most terrifying thing you could ever imagine. Even Moses trembled in fear, facing the awesome majesty of God in all of his holiness. God's holiness is terrifying when you stand in its presence without a mediator for your sin. Friends, to face the holiness of God and all the ugliness of our sin is to literally stare into the abyss of eternal condemnation. It's to be lost without hope. Back in the early 1970s, my father worked at a summer camp in the uh, Sierra Nevadas of California outside Yosemite National Park. He had a friend by the name of Kendall, and Kendall was a, a rock climber. And uh, one weekend, Kendall, who was in his early 20s, took a young man of 13 years old to Yosemite National Park, and they were going to climb the face of Half Dome in Yosemite, that iconic mountain peak in Yosemite National Park, Half Dome. Kendall and this young man climbed up 1,000 feet, and somehow one of their climbing ropes was lost, it was irretrievable, and they were left with one rope, and they were left standing a 1,000 feet above the valley floor of Yosemite on a tiny ledge only inches wide and a couple feet long. And as they stood there on this ledge, friends, imagine looking down a 1,000 feet. One rope was already lost, and this 13-year-old boy began to realize that the anchor that was holding him to the rock face was coming loose. Imagine the terror of looking down, knowing that your anchor is about to pull loose. Well, in a split second, Kendall took his anchor and he hooked this young man into his anchor. And in that very instant, Kendall fell a thousand feet to his death. He gave his life so that this young man could live. And in the very same way, friends, God hasn't left us in our desperate, hopeless situation. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to take the fall for us, 
to take the weight of our sin and our guilt upon himself, to bear that fall for our sake so that we could live. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and in his sacrifice for your sins, you no longer need to fear Sinai. You no longer need to fear God and his holiness. You no longer need to fear God and his judgment because now in Jesus Christ we have a mediator. We have hope. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, those of us who have come to Christ have now come to a better mountain. We've come to Zion, the mountain of hope. Let's take a look at Mount Zion and everything we have here in Zion, the mountain of hope. Now like Sinai, Mount Zion was also a real place. It was a hill in Jerusalem where the Jewish temple was built and it became known as the dwelling place of God. And all throughout scripture, Zion is pictured as a symbol of God's grace and blessing. Now I want you to look at the start of this description of Mount Zion in verses 22 through 24. Look at how verse 22 begins. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. The author of Hebrews says, but you have come. That's an incredible phrase. In the ancient Greek that this was written in, that is written in what is called the present perfect tense. And what that means is that all of the rights and privileges and blessings of Zion are already yours. You have come to Zion. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are already in Zion. You've come to Zion, it's all yours. When I was a kid growing up, some of our good friends were the uh, owners of Peter's Billiards. I don't know if you've seen Peter's Billiards on 35W South, kind of right around Bloomington and Edina there off of uh, Highway 62. And uh, when I was a kid, Peter's Billiards had a huge arcade room. They sold the old school arcade games. You know, you kids today, you don't realize how good you got it. I mean, you got your smartphones and you got all these incredible games on your smartphones. Back in the day, we had to go to the arcade, you know what I'm saying, to play those games. And, and uh, we would go on the weekends at night after the store was closed, and our friend Peter, he would give us each, all the kids, he would give us a big cup like you get at the Twins games, filled with quarters, and he would open the door and he would say, it's all yours. Go at it. I mean, kid, friends, that's a kid's dream, you know what I'm saying? And we would play these video games for hours and hours. Friends, God has opened the door to Zion for us as followers of Christ, and God opens that door wide and he says, it's all yours, all of this. Go for it, it's yours. What are the blessings and privileges that God has given us in Zion? Man, the, the author of Hebrews here paints an incredible picture of all that we've come to in Zion. He starts out, he says, first of all, we come to thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Some of your translations may say festal assembly. That word in the ancient Greek was used to refer to national holidays or the Olympics when all the nation would come together in the stadium and erupting in huge crowds and cheers. Celebration. 
And in Zion, we come to this huge crowd of thousands and thousands of angels in festal assembly celebration. You know, Ron Backus, man, you walked into the opening ceremony of the Olympics, right, in, in, uh, in Spain. And, and I've heard Ron tell about what an incredible experience that is, walking into the stadium with thousands and thousands of people. But friends, when we enter into Zion, we're not just walking into a stadium of thousands and thousands of people. We're walking into a stadium of millions of people with thousands and thousands of angels flying around. I mean, I've been to some really cool concerts over the years with some great pyrotechnics and laser shows, but this is going to make anything on this earth pale in comparison when we walk into Zion. Look at what Revelation chapter 5 says about this. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And friends, we're gonna be right in the midst of this when we come to Zion. What an incredible thought. The second thing that we have when we arrive in Zion, when we come to Zion as followers of Christ, we enter into the church of the firstborn. The church of the firstborn. Now friends, this is an incredible privilege to be a part of the church of the firstborn. In Colossians 1.15, the apostle Paul calls Jesus Christ the firstborn son of God. Now, the word firstborn there didn't mean that he was literally born, but it meant preeminent or above all things. He was the firstborn. And as the firstborn, friends, in the ancient world, the firstborn was the one who received the inheritance. He received the blessing. He was the one who would inherit the estate of the Father. And Jesus Christ, as the firstborn Son of God, is the heir to all things that are God's. But look at this, as part of the church of the firstborn, as the part of the believers throughout history have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we too share in receiving all the rights and privileges of the firstborn through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Look how the Apostle Paul describes this in Romans chapter 8. He says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. Friends, as followers of Christ, we become co-heirs with Jesus. Everything that is his, all the rights and privileges of Zion are ours because of Jesus Christ. What an incredible thought that is. We are heirs to the king of kings, sons and daughters of the king, princes and princes of the king. Not only that, but Hebrews goes on in chapter 12 to say that our names are written in heaven. We're not only heirs, but our names are written down in heaven. You've heard of the Lamb's Book of Life where the Lord records the names of everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. Now friends, think about this. We might not have arrived there yet, but your name is written down there. Isn't that incredible to think about? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has your name written down in the annals of heaven. Your place is secured. Your reservation is made. Your trip is booked and paid for. Your place is guaranteed. What an incredible thought that is. Your name is written in the book of heaven if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today. Not only that, but we also come to God, the judge of all. We get to enter into the very presence of our holy God, the judge of all. But friends, we don't need to fear this judge. You know, unlike a defendant in a courtroom who wouldn't dare approach the judge, right? If a defendant tries to approach the judge, what's going to happen? The bailiff's going to come and take him out, you know what I'm saying? 
But friends, we don't just get to approach the judge and his bench. We get to go back into his inner chamber because our judge, our God is a gracious judge. He's a forgiving judge. He's applied Jesus' sacrifice to us so that we can come into his presence. Not only do we get to see these thousands of angels, the church of the firstborn, God, the judge of all, but we also get to see the spirits of the righteous made perfect who are already living in Zion. Who are the spirits of the righteous made perfect? Friends, these are all of the faithful people throughout history who have already passed away and are now living in the presence of God in Zion today. What an incredible thing to think about. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you die, this, the grave is not the end for you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, the apostle Paul says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Friends, do you know if you're a follower of Jesus, when you die, you are instantaneously taken into the presence of God. How do I know that's true? I know that's true because Jesus told us. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And so as Christians, we don't need to fear the grave. And friends, man, when you think about it, what an awesome reunion that's gonna be someday to join the spirits of all of the righteous because they put their trust in Jesus Christ. I can't wait. I'm gonna see my dad again. Can't wait to see my grandpa and so many people who lived following Jesus in this world. And they're waiting for us in Zion and we're gonna be reunited with him again one day. What an awesome thought. Not only that, but we come to Jesus, our mediator, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's that all about? In Genesis chapter four, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel out of jealousy. In Genesis chapter four, said that Abel's blood cried out from the ground demanding justice. But friends, Jesus' blood also cries out, and Jesus' blood doesn't cry out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out grace and hope and forgiveness because Jesus shed his blood and he paid the penalty for our sin to give us the right to stand in the presence of our holy God. You know, when we see these two pictures, in contrast to the picture of Sinai, everything about this portrait of Zion says, come, belong here, come to life, come to community. Friends, there's no better place to be. On the new covenant mountain of Zion, you'll find holiness, you'll find forgiveness, you'll find grace, and you'll experience real life and life to the full. You'll find everything you ever longed for in the city of the living God. It's where you were created to be. But here's the deal. God's opened the door to Zion for us. But you have to choose to enter. God's opened the door, but you have to choose to enter. In John chapter one, verse 12, John says that to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You need to choose to enter into Zion. God's not gonna force you in, but he opens that door and he gives us this choice. And how do we make that choice? 1 John 1, 9 says, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and he's just and he'll forgive us of our sins and he'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness so that we can enter the door to Zion with confidence and to receive all the rights and privileges of the firstborn, the heirs with Christ. That door to Zion won't stay open forever, friends. 
And this leads me to the third point this morning. All of us need to make the ultimate choice. Will we enter or will we stay at the foot of Sinai? Verses 25 through 29 report that the Israelites faced God's judgment for their rebellion. And just like God judged the Israelites for their rebellion, God tells us that another day of judgment is coming. God's going to bring an end to this present earthly system. He's going to bring an end to this present world. Judgment day is coming, friends. The door to Zion isn't going to be open forever. And when the day of judgment comes, God is going to shake everything in creation. Look at what the author of Hebrews says in verses 25 through 27. He says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, speaking of the Israelites, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Friends, God is going to wipe out this whole creation. Everything we know, the heavens, the earth, are going to be laid bare. Look at how 2 Peter describes it. 2 Peter describes this day of judgment, but on the day of the Lord, it will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Friends, we hear a lot of talk today. A lot of people are worried about global warming. Global warming ultimately destroying this planet. But I'll tell you something, friends. It's not man-made global warming that's going to destroy this planet. It's the global warming of God's divine holy judgment that is coming one day. And he is going to wipe out everything that we know in this creation. And everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And those things that cannot be shaken are simply this. Those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you need not fear this day of judgment. But the question is, which mountain are you going to be standing before when that day arrives? Which mountain are you standing before today? Because everything but Zion is going to be shaken and destroyed. Now here's the thing. Some of you might be thinking, but Jason, you know, I'm not that bad of a guy, you know? I mean, how, how would God, why would God condemn me? I'm not that bad. But friends, if you think about it, the reality is you're not that good either, am I right? You know what I'm saying? See, that's the problem. We think like our goodness is some kind of fair standard in this whole deal, but it's not our goodness that's the standard. It's God's goodness and his holiness and his perfection which is the standard. And I tell you what, your goodness is completely worthless in the eyes of a perfect holy God. Friends, if Moses trembled in the presence of God, we're all in trouble without a covering, without a mediator, without putting our hope in Jesus Christ. But again, the good news of the gospel is that for all of us who trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We've received Zion. Look at how chapter 12 ends in verses 28 through 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ. And so as I close today, I want to ask you this question one more time. Which mountain are you standing before today? Are you standing before Sinai or are you standing before Zion? Because the reality is, friends, you can meet God on both mountains. But will you meet him as your righteous judge or as your gracious heavenly father welcoming you home with open arms? The choice is up to you. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful word from the book of Hebrews and the encouragement that it gives us as believers to continue to hope, to continue to press on, to continue to live for the cause of the gospel in this world because it is the only hope for all of humanity. Lord Jesus, I thank you for how you have opened the door to Zion for all of us who have trusted in you. And Lord, I know that Many of us here this morning are so thankful for the blessings and privileges that we have in you. And I just pray that these words from Hebrews today would just enlarge our vision of all that we have in Zion because of Jesus Christ. May it inspire us, Lord, to live holy lives, to live faithful lives as your ambassadors in this world, to share the good news of the gospel with all who still need to hear that the door to Zion is open. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't yet walked through the door to Zion, who hasn't yet put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, and Lord, I I pray, Lord, that even right now, you might, through your Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself in power, Lord, that you might pull them to you and compel them to cry out to you and put their faith in you today, that they might confess their sins and acknowledge their need for a Savior, and in doing that, that they might experience for the very first time the covering of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which covers our sin, which gives us a mediator, the ability to come before the great judge of all creation. What a privilege it is, Lord, to come before you, the holy, righteous judge, but not as guilty defendants, but as privileged sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray, Lord, that nobody here this morning would leave without knowing with certainty that they have right standing with God through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. Thank you for all the privileges that are ours through Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen.